Section 14 of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter 34. Blackmailing a Government. When they reached London, the evening newspapers were filled with a new sensation. The Crimson Circle had indeed decided upon an ambitious program. Briefly, the story as related in an official communique to the press was as follows. That morning, every member of the government had received a typewritten document bearing no address and no other indication of its origin save a crimson circle stamped on every page. The document ran, Every effort of your police, both official and private, the genius of Mr. Derrick Yale and the plodding efforts of Chief Inspector Parr have failed to check our activity. The full story of our success is not known. It has been unfortunately our unpleasant duty to remove a number of people from life, not so much in a spirit of vengeance, as to serve as a salutary warning to others, and only this morning it has been our unhappy duty to remove Mr. Samuel Haggett, a lawyer who was engaged by the late Harvey Froyant on particular work, in the course of which he came unpleasantly close to our identity. Fortunately for the other members of his firm, he undertook that task personally. His body will be found by the side of the railway between Buxton and Marsden. Since the police are unable to hold us, and since we are in complete agreement with those in authority who say that we are the most dangerous menace to society that exists, we have agreed to forego our activities on condition that the sum of a million pounds sterling is placed at our disposal. The method by which this money shall be transferred will be detailed later. This must be accompanied by a free pardon in blank, so that we may, if occasion necessitates, or hereinafter our identity is disclosed, avail ourselves of that document." Refusal to agree to our terms will have unpleasant consequences. We name hereunder twelve eminent parliamentarians who must stand as hostages for the fulfilment of our desire. If, at the end of the week, the government have not agreed to our terms, one of these gentlemen will be removed. The first person that Parr met on his arrival at Whitehall was Derek Yale and for once the famous detective looked worried. "'I was afraid of this development,' he said. "'And the queer thing is that it has come at a moment when I thought I was in a position to lay my hand on the chief offender.' He took Parr's hand in his, and walked him along the gloomy corridor. "'This spoils my day's fishing,' he said, and Inspector Parr remembered. "'Of course, today is the day you die.' but I suppose you are reprieved under the general amnesty which the Crimson Circle have issued, he said dryly, and his companion laughed. I want to tell you, before we go into this meeting, that I am willing to place myself unreservedly at your disposal, he said quietly. I think you ought to know, Pa, that the present wishes of the Cabinet are to give me an official status and place the whole of the investigations in my charge. I have been sounded on the matter, and have given them point-blank refusal. I am convinced that you are the best man for the job, and I will serve under no other chief. 
Thank you, said Parr simply. Perhaps the cabinet will take another view. The cabinet meeting was held in the Secretary of State's office. All the recipients of the Crimson Circle's memo were present from the beginning, but it was some time before outsiders were called in. Yale was summoned first, and a quarter of an hour later the messenger beckoned the inspector. Inspector Parr knew most of the illustrious gathering by sight, and being on the opposite side in politics had no particular respect for any. He felt an air of hostility as he came into the big room, and the chilly nod which the white-bearded Prime Minister gave him in response to his bow confirmed his impression. "'Mr. Parr,' said the Prime Minister icily, "'we are discussing the question of the Crimson Circle, which, as you must realise, has become almost a national problem.' Their dangerous character has been emphasized by a memorandum which has been addressed to the various members of the cabinet by this infamous association, and which I have no doubt you have read in the newspapers. Yes, sir, said the inspector. I will not disguise from you the fact that we are profoundly dissatisfied with the course which our investigations have taken. Although you have had every facility and every power granted you, including— He consulted a paper before him, but Parr interrupted him. I should not like you to tell the meeting what powers I have received, Prime Minister, he said firmly or what particular privileges have been granted me by the Secretary of State. The Prime Minister was taken aback. Very well, he said. I will add that, although you have had extraordinary privileges and opportunities, and you have even been present when the outrages have taken place, you have not succeeded in bringing the criminal to justice. The inspector nodded. It was our original wish to place the matter in the hands of Mr. Derek Yale, who has been especially successful in tracing two of the murderers, without, however, being able to bring the prime culprit to justice. Mr. Yale, however, refuses to accept the commission unless you are in control." He has kindly expressed his willingness to serve under you, and in this course we are agreed. I understand that your resignation is already before the commissioners, and that it has been formally accepted. That acceptance, for the time being, is reserved. Now remember, Mr. Parr, the Prime Minister leant forward and spoke very earnestly and emphatically, it is absolutely impossible that we can accede to the Crimson Circle's demands. Such a cause would be the negation of all law and the surrender of all authority. We rely upon you to afford to every member of the government who is threatened that protection which is his right as a citizen. Your whole career is in the balance. The inspector, thus dismissed, rose slowly. "'If the Crimson Circle keeps its word,' he said, 
I guarantee that not a hair of one member of your government shall be harmed in London. Whether I can capture the man who describes himself as the Crimson Circle remains to be seen. I suppose, said the Prime Minister, there is no doubt that this unfortunate man, Haggett, has been killed? It was Derek Yale who answered. No, sir. The body was found early this morning. Mr. Haggett, who lives at Marsden, left London last night by train, and apparently the crime was committed en route. It is deplorable. Deplorable. The Prime Minister shook his head. A terrible orgy of murder and crime, and it seems that we are not at the end of it yet. When they came out into Whitehall, Yale and his companion found that a large crowd had gathered, for news had leaked out that a meeting was being held to discuss this new and extraordinary problem which confronted the government. Yale, who was recognized, was cheered, but Inspector Parr passed unnoticed through the crowd, to his intense relief. Undoubtedly, the Crimson Circle was the sensation of the hour. Some of the evening newspaper placards bore a crimson circle in imitation of the famous insignia of the gang, and wherever men met, there the possibility of the circle carrying their threat into effect was discussed. Thalia Drummond looked up as her employer came in. The evening newspaper was in front of her, and her chin rested on her clasped hands, and she read every line, word by word. Derek noticed the interest, and observed, too, her momentary confusion as she folded the paper and put it away. "'Well, Miss Drummond, what do you think of their last exploit?' "'It is colossal,' she said. "'In some respects, admirable.' He looked at her gravely. "'I confess I can see little to admire,' he said. "'You take rather a queer, twisted view of things.' "'Don't I?' she said coolly. "'You must never forget, Mr. Yale, that I have a queer, twisted mind.' He paused at the door of his room and looked back at her, a long, keen scrutiny, which she met without so much as an eyelid quivering. "'I think you should be very grateful that Mr. Johnson of Mildred Street no longer receives your interesting communications,' he said. And she was silent. He came out again soon after. "'I'm probably going to establish my offices at police headquarters,' he said and realizing that that atmosphere is one in which you will not nourish, I am leaving you here in control of my ordinary business. "'Are you accepting the responsibility for capturing the Crimson Circle?' she asked steadily. He shook his head. "'Inspector Parr is in control,' he said. "'But I am going to help him.' He made no further reference to his new task, and the rest of the morning was spent in routine work. He went out to lunch, and said he would not be back that day, giving her instructions regarding letters he wished dispatched. He had already gone before his telephone bell went, and at the sound of the voice at the other end she nearly dropped the receiver. "'Yes, it is I,' she said. "'Good morning, Mr. Beardmore.' "'Is Yale there?' asked Jack. "'He has just gone out. He will not be back today. If there is anything important to tell him, I may be able to find him.' she said, steadying her voice with an effort. "'I don't know whether it's important or not,' said Jack, "'but I was going through my father's papers this morning, a very disagreeable job, by the way, 
and I found a whole bunch of papers relating to Marl. To Marl? she said slowly. Yes, apparently poor Dad knew a great deal more about Marl than we imagined. He had been in prison. Did you know that? I could have guessed it, said Thalia. Father always put through an inquiry about people before he did business with them, Jack went on. And apparently there is a lot of explanation about Marl's early life, collected by a French agency. He seems to have been a pretty bad lot, and I wonder the governor had dealings with him. One curious document is an envelope which is marked Photograph of Execution. It was sealed up by the French people, and apparently the governor didn't open it. He hated gruesome things of that kind. "'Have you opened it?' she asked quickly. "'No,' he answered in a tone of surprise. "'Why do you jump at me like that?' "'Will you do me a favour, Jack?' It was the first time she had ever called him by name, and she could almost see him redden. "'Why, why, of course, Philia, I'd do anything for you,' he said eagerly. "'Don't open the envelope.' she said intensely. Keep all the papers relating to Marl in a safe place. Will you promise that? I promise, he said. What a queer request to make. Have you told anybody about it? she asked. I sent a note to Inspector Parr. He heard her exclamation of annoyance. Will you promise me not to tell anybody, especially about the photograph? Of course, Thalia, he answered. I'll send it along to you if you like. No, no, don't do that, she said. Then, abruptly, she finished the conversation. She sat for a few minutes, breathing quickly, and then she rose, and putting on her hat, she locked up the office and went to lunch. Chapter 35 Thalia lunches with a cabinet minister The fourth of the month had passed, and Derek Yale was still alive. He commented on the fact as he came into the office which he and Inspector Parr jointly occupied. "'Incidentally,' he said, "'I've lost my fishing.' Parr grunted. "'It is better that you lost your fishing than that we lost sight of you,' he said. "'I'm perfectly convinced that if you had taken that trip, you would never have returned.' Yale laughed. You have a tremendous faith in the Crimson Circle and their ability to keep their promises. I have, to a point, said the inspector, without looking up from the letter he was writing. I hear that Brabazon has made a statement to the police, said Yale, after an interval. Yes, said the inspector. Not a very informative one, but a statement of sorts. He has admitted that for a long time he was changing the money which the Crimson Circle extracted from their victims, though he was unaware of the fact. He also gives particulars of his joining the Circle, after which, of course, he acted as a conscious agent. "'Are you charging him with the murder of Marl?' Inspector Parr shook his head. "'We haven't sufficient evidence for that,' he said, blotted his letter, folded it and enclosed it in an envelope. "'What did you discover in France? I have not had an opportunity of talking to you about that,' asked Yale. Parr leant back in his chair, felt for his pipe, and lit it before he answered. "'About as much as poor old Froyant discovered,' he said. "'In fact, I have followed very closely the same line of investigation that he had.' 
It was mostly and mainly about Marl and his iniquities. You know that he was a member of a criminal gang in France, and that he and his companion, Lightman, I think that was the name, were condemned to death. Lightman should have died, but the executioners bungled the job, and he was sent off to Devil's Island or Cayenne, or one of those French settlements where he died. He escaped, said Yale quietly. The devil he did, Mr. Parr looked up. Personally, I wasn't so interested in Lightman as I was in Marl. Do you speak French, Pa? asked Yale suddenly. Fluently, was the reply, and the inspector looked up. Why do you ask? I have no reason, except that I wondered how you pursued your inquiries. I speak French very well, said Parr, and would have changed the subject. And Lightman escaped, said Yale softly. I wonder where he is now. That is a question I have never troubled to ask myself. There was a note of impatience in the inspector's voice. You are not the only person interested in Marl, apparently. I saw a note on your desk from young Beardmore, saying that he discovered some papers relating to the late Felix. His father had also made inquiries about the man. Of course, James Beardmore would. He was a cautious man. He was lunching with the commissioner, Mr. Parr learned, and was not at all hurt that he was excluded from the invitation. He was very busy in these days, selecting the men who were to form the bodyguard of the cabinet, and he could well afford to miss engagements which invariably bored him. As it happens, his company would have been a great embarrassment, for Yale had something to communicate to the commissioner, something which it was not well that Inspector Parr should hear. It was near to the end of the meal that he dropped his bombshell, and it was so effective that the commissioner fell back in his chair and gasped. "'Somebody at police headquarters,' he said incredulously. "'Why, that is impossible, Mr. Yale.' Derek Yale shook his head. "'I wouldn't say anything was impossible, sir,' he said. "'But doesn't it seem to you that all the evidence tends to support that idea? Every effort that we make to bring about the undoing of the Crimson Circle is anticipated. Somebody having access to the cell of Sibley killed him. Who but a person having authority from headquarters? Take the case of Froyant. There were a number of detectives on duty round and about the house. Nobody apparently came in.' and nobody went out. The commissioner was calmer now. "'Let us have this thing clear, Mr. Yale,' he said. "'Are you accusing Pa?' Derek Yale laughed and shook his head. "'Why, of course not,' he said. "'I cannot imagine Pa having a single criminal instinct. Only, if you will think the matter out—' He leant over the table and lowered his voice and will go into every detail and every crime that the Crimson Circle has committed, you cannot fail to be struck by this fact that, hovering in the background all the time, was somebody in authority. Par, said the Commissioner. Derek Yale bit his lower lip thoughtfully. I don't want to think of Par, he said. I would rather think of him as being victimized by a subordinate he trusts. You quite understand, he went on quickly that I should not hesitate to accuse Parr if my discoveries took me in that direction. I would not even free you, sir, from suspicion, 
if you gave me cause. The commissioner looked uncomfortable. I can assure you that I know nothing whatever about the Crimson Circle, he said gruffly, and realizing the absurdity of his protest, laughed. Who is that girl over there? He pointed to a couple who were dining in a corner of the big restaurant. She keeps looking across toward you. That girl, said Mr. Derrick Yale carefully, is a young lady named Thalia Drummond, and her companion, unless I am greatly mistaken, is the Honourable Raphael Willings, a member of the government, and one who has been threatened by the Crimson Circle. Thalia Drummond? The commissioner whistled. Isn't she the young person who was in very serious trouble some time ago? She was Froyant's secretary, was she not? The other nodded. She is an enigma to me, he said, shaking his head. And the greatest mystery of all is her nerve. At this precise moment she is supposed to be sitting in my office, answering telephone calls and dealing with any correspondence which may arrive. You employ her, do you? asked the astonished commissioner, and then, with a little smile, "'I agree with you about her nerve, but how does a girl of that class come to be acquainted with Mr. Willings?' Here Derrick Yale was not prepared to supply an answer. He was still sitting with the commissioner when he saw the girl rise, and, followed by her companion, walk slowly down the room. Her way led her past his table, and she met his inquiring glance with a smile and a little nod, and said something over her shoulder to the middle-aged man who was following her. "'How is that for nerve?' asked Derrick. "'I should imagine you'd have something to say to the young lady,' was the commissioner's only comment. Derrick Yale was very seldom conventional, either in his speech or his behaviour, but for once he found it difficult to deal with a painful situation other than in a time-honoured way. The girl had reached the office a few minutes before him and she was taking off her hat when he came in. "'One moment, Miss Drummond,' he said. "'I have a few words to say to you before you continue your work. Why were you away from the office at lunchtime? I particularly asked you to be here.' "'And Mr. Willings particularly asked me to go to lunch,' said Thalia, with an innocent smile. "'And as he is a member of the government, I am sure you would not have liked me to refuse.' "'How did you come to know, Mr. Willings?' She looked at him up and down with that cool, insolent glance of hers. "'There are many ways one may meet men,' she said. "'One may advertise for them in the matrimonial newspapers, or one may meet them in the park, or one may be introduced to them. I was introduced to Mr. Willings.' "'When?' "'This morning,' she said. "'At about two o'clock.' I sometimes go to dances at Marrow's Club, she explained. It is the relaxation which my youth excuses. That is where we became acquainted. Yale took some money from his pocket and laid it on the desk. There's your week's wages, Miss Drummond, he said, without heat. I shall not require your services after this afternoon. She raised her eyebrows. Aren't you going to reform me? she asked him so seriously that he was taken aback. Then he laughed. "'You're beyond reformation. There are many things I will excuse, and had there been a serious shortage in the petty cash, I could have overlooked that. 
but I cannot allow you to leave my office when I give you explicit instructions to stay here. She picked up the money and counted it. Exactly the sum, she mocked. You must be Scottish, Mr. Yale. There's only one way that you could be reformed, Thalia Drummond. His voice was very earnest, and he seemed to experience a difficulty in finding the right words. And what is that, pray? For a man to marry you. I'm almost inclined to make the experiment. She sat on the edge of the desk and rocked with silent laughter. You are funny, she said at last. And now I see that you are a true reformer. She was solemnity itself now. Confess, Mr. Yale, that you only look upon me as an experiment, and that you have no more affection for me than I have for that aged and decrepit blue-bottle crawling up the wall. I'm not in love with you, if that is what you mean. I did mean something of the sort, she said. No, on the whole, I think I'll take my dismissal and my week's wages, and thank you for giving me the opportunity of meeting and serving such a brilliant genius. He ended the conversation as though he had made some business proposal which had been declined, and said something about giving her a reference, and there the matter ended for him. He went into his office, and did not even do her the honour of slamming the door after him. And yet her dismissal was a serious matter for Thalia. It meant one of two things. Either that Derek Yale seriously suspected her, and that was the gravest possibility to her, or else that her discharge was only a ruse, part of a deeper plan to bring about her undoing. On her way home she recalled his reference to Johnson of Mildred Street. There might be something behind that, beyond the revelation of the fact that he knew she was associated with the Crimson Circle, and he wanted her to know he knew. When she reached her flat there was a letter waiting for her, as there had been on the previous night. The controlling spirit of the Crimson Circle was an assiduous correspondent, as far as she was concerned. In the privacy of her own room, she tore open the envelope. "'You did well,' the letter ran. "'You have carried out my instructions to the letter. The introduction to Willings was well managed, and, as I promised you, there was no difficulty.' I wish you to know this man thoroughly and discover what are his little weaknesses. Particularly do I wish to know his attitude of mind and the real attitude of the cabinet towards my proposal. The dress you wore at lunch today was not quite good enough. Do not spare expense in the matter of costume. Derek Yale is dismissing you this afternoon, but that need not trouble you, for there is no further need for you to stay in his office. You are dining tonight with Willings. He is particularly susceptible to feminine charms. If possible, let him invite you to his house. He has a collection of ancient swords of which he is very proud. You will then be able to discover the lay of the house. She looked into the envelope. There were two crisp notes for a hundred pounds, and as she put them into her little handbag, her face was very grave. End of section 14